0: welcome to on the metal tales from the hardware software interface i'm brian cantrell with me as always is jess frizell hey jess hey brian and joining us is our boss steve tuck hey steve Present. present all right jess you want to introduce who we've got in the virtual garage today
1: Yeah, so remotely, uh, which is a fun one, we have John Graham Cumming, who wrote The Geek Atlas, I was just looking at that this morning, and The Makebook that I also have, and also works at Cloudflare as a CTO. All
2: right, John, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be able to talk to you from far away. Yeah,
0: and this is a conversation we've really been looking forward to having for a long time, because when you dial up computer history which we've been known to do in this podcast you you turn the dial all the way back um do you want to talk about how you got into babbage and his work with with lovelace and so on
2: yeah i mean i think i probably knew about it at university because it was mentioned as like oh by the way there was this other thing and maybe it was a computer charles babbage and then what really happened was Right at the time when I was at university in the UK, the Science Museum in London started building one of Babbage's machines, this thing called the Difference Engine, which is really a very big specialized calculator. It's not a computer, but. And they started actually taking his plans and building it. And I, because of where I lived when I was at college and where my parents were, I used to have to travel through London. And so I would literally go through London and sneak out of the tube, go into the Science Museum, look at this thing being built. And then slowly it would get bigger and bigger and bigger because they built it in public, Oh wow! which is really, really cool. And so I kind of knew about it. And I remember at one point I had this really strong memory of taking my girlfriend who was also a mathematician to see this thing. And then the two of us go, okay, the method of difference is let's sit down. And we sat down on this. There's a little patch of grass outside the science museum. It's not a very grassy area. Sitting down on this patch of grass on a, on a, Sunny day in London, that's why I remember it. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Very distinctive. <laughs> and and sitting with the two of us with a piece of paper working out, okay, how does this thing work? How does the method of differences work? So that was probably really when I got excited about Babbage. And then, you know, subsequently realized that the difference engine, as cool as it was, isn't actually programmable, and that was a bit sad.
0: And did you already know at that point that you were interested in computing? I mean, had you grown up in computing at that point?
2: Yeah. So, so I was doing mathematics and computation, as Oxford called it, uh, because Oxford was very theoretical it was all about the theory of computation. None of this messing around with real computers. But I had messed around with computers for long, you know, for a long time because, well, if you sort of go backwards, you have to work backwards. I was obviously a child of the eighties, eight bit. Uh, revolution in, uh, in the UK. I had a thing called the BBC Micro which was this really cool computer with 48k of RAM.
0: You know, I feel whenever the BBC Micro is mentioned on the podcast, it's been mentioned a couple of times, I feel that all of our English listeners play God Save the Queen in the background. <laughs> I feel that there is
2: get so, the tears in the eyes. There are two groups, right? So in, in the UK at that time, there was the Sinclair group, right? The ZX81, the ZX Spectrum, and then there were the BBC Micro uh, people. And so, you know, we were sort of two camps. And the, the Sinclair machines were slightly cheaper.
0: Okay, I've got so many follow-up questions. Was this, is this a class divide? Is it geographical? What, what, what divides these two clans?
2: I mean, it was, it was definitely, there was definitely a price difference. The, the Sinclair machines were much, much cheaper. Um, so I think they were much, much more widespread. Whereas the BBC machines were in schools, So people got, got, you know, at them at school. And I ended up with a BBC machine because my parents in their wisdom had said, well, we'll, you know, we have, they had two boys and they're like, we'll let these two boys do the things they seem really interested in. And my brother had had years and years of piano lessons and played the piano really well. And I said, I want to have a computer. And they said, well, we probably spent that much money on piano lessons. So we'll buy you this, this machine, uh, which I still have, which I treasure. It's in Wow. The house That's oh, cool. and, wow. And so it's like, you know, it was a big, big deal. And it, it was very funny, actually. I, I switched it on a few years ago, and immediately the power supply blew up. So I oh had God. to replace the power <laughs> supply. And I, I looked at the back of it, and it has the wattage of the, of the machine, which was about the wattage of a light bulb. And I remember thinking, really, I knew, I knew that my parents didn't have a loads of money to burn, and they'd spent a lot of money on this machine. And I had this incredible feeling like, oh, my God, I can't run up their electricity bill. With this machine, so I used to switch it on and then go and switch a light off somewhere in the house to be like (laughs) net net zero. I think my parents. I actually don't think my parents had that little money, but it was more like I had this thing where I was like, I gotta. Well,
0: if, if the draw is like sixty watts, this is like yeah. not even observable on the power bill, I assume. Uh, <laughs> I, mean.
2: I guess, but I felt as a you know I was a child, right? I was like, so I gotta do my bit. So what a conscientious child. I know, it's I mean,
0: right, yeah. Meanwhile, like my child, I'll take one of those. I, I'll take <laughs> one of those too. I can't get my kids to be like, could you just get off the mobile network and onto the Wi-Fi so you don't bankrupt the household watching YouTube. <laughs>
2: it was a different time it was, it was a different, different
0: time, time. <laughs> children were were so mindful of their of the power bill
2: but actually if you to, to continue answering your question if you go really right back in time at some point when i was about i think seven i was very bright and my parents were like what the hell do we do with this bright kid and um they found and you know, of course it's pre-internet right this is like in the 70s they found this association which was you know, for parents, for desperate parents of intelligent children, basically. <laughs> and they're like, what do we do with him? And they, they, did, they did this thing at Cambridge University in the summer where you could basically take your kids and dump them off and, you know, let your kids run wild. And so I went to that a couple of times and I actually hated it because some of the kids were so snotty. Right. But there was one person I, I went up to, and obviously this person was in either the mathematics or computer science department at Cambridge, and I said, oh, explain to me how a computer works. I want to know. You imagine I'm like seven years old. And um, what I remember of that is the person getting out a pad of paper and starting to drew this strip on it and little boxes on it and basically described a Turing machine. And I have at home my own little Turing things I've tried to do in, in strips of paper and come up with this computer thing. So I think I was infected with computer stuff pretty early on. Uh, and my mother would say, even as a baby, I was fascinated by things like, how does a clock work? I would stare at clocks. Like, how does that work? <laughs> so, I don't know. Something happens. Probably in the womb, maybe. <laughs> so,
0: so, where is the like the eight-year-old that explained the Turing machine? Where where did, did he end up?
2: Oh, no, no, no. This was a professor. Oxford, oh, a professor. Oh, excuse me. I'm yeah, sorry. It was, it was an adult. I mean... Whether he was like, you know, 21 or 40, I have no idea, right? As a child, <laughs> I was, when somebody sat and explained this to me. I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And then, of course, later on, I go and actually go to do computer science. I was like, wait a minute, that's a Turing, you know, this guy Turing. And now I hear about all this stuff for, for real and some of the theory So, so I you know, I was into computers from an early age. I was kind of nerdy.
0: And you were obviously writing your own programs on the, the BBC Micro?
2: Yes, yes, obviously. So I think I started out just playing with the machine, trying to understand it. And then I bought this book that was called The Advanced User's Guide, which was, it had a lot of stuff about how the operating system, sort of the BIOS for this thing worked, and a lot of the the guts there. And I was very interested in that. So I really learned assembly language and then started doing assembly language stuff on the machine. And at the same time, I was programming another 8-bit machine, which was uh, made by Sharp and called the MZ80K, and then some other Z80-based machines.
0: So the mz to give you the the 80k
2: interesting it's a a bit like a commodore pet as an integrated crt and a tape player and unusually it had a keyboard where you could actually type every character that was in the character set It was really weird because it had a basically it didn't have ascii it had its own thing with all sorts of crazy symbols and stuff (laughs) uh, and, and you could type everything so anyway i was i was really into like assembly language programming and then basically to make my programs faster or to access bits of the operating system um, and built various things. And me with another boy at school, at high school, we, we wrote programs. So we wrote a statistical analysis package. We wrote a thing for timetabling. And then basically around this time there, we had a 800 kilobit per second, I think, local area network at school. And we disassembled the operating system and figured out how to make it work. And um, the funny thing was we disassembled how the, operating, how the operating system worked so we could get access to the network. And then we implemented our own packet send and receive routines, implemented our own stateful protocol on top of it so we could reliably send stuff, built a network management package, all of this in assembly language.
0: Well, And all of this very early for networking, for local area networking, yeah, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. This was, there was this company in the UK called Research Machines that sold computers to schools and huh. they were first going on. And the school I was at, the high school I was at, the upper school in the UK, the head teacher died very suddenly of a brain hemorrhage. A oh lot of money was raised, and the money was spent on this new thing, which was a computer room.
1: Ooh, cool. And in the
2: computer room, they had a network of these Z80-based machines. Um, and myself and another boy, we, we hacked them. Basically, what was the substrate? Because this was going to be too early for Ethernet, right? Well, it was this thing called ZNet, which was their Z-Net. own. ZNet, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they 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 made their own their own network stuff, really. So so the, the central machine, so the machines were running uh, CPM, uh, right? And then they were, and then there the central machine that was running MPM, which had eight inch disks, and then they had this networking thing. I think it was called. Uh, what was it called it had a funny name but it was 10 base 2 basically coax it was 10 base 2 okay okay so it was coax um oh chain that's what they called it they called it chain and 800 kilobits per second the mac address was an 8-bit address okay. on a dip switch in the machine <laughs> in <which laughs> <when laughs> interesting experiment in. i mean it was it was it was a holy but it worked wow um, the best thing is that myself and Peter, who was the other boy who really got into this kind of stuff, we used to sit physically closest to the file server machine as you followed the network. Because because it was uh, coax, you could actually remove the, the, the connector at the end, terminate it with a BNC terminator, turning the network into a network with the file server and two machines. And then up the performance, because you just cut off the rest of the network.
0: Right. <laughs> so you just close the door to the rest of the network. <laughs> wow, things get a lot faster.
2: That's great. Yeah, so you do a file transfer, and the other kids in the class were getting on your nerves. You just pop the network off, terminate it, do your file transfer, and put it back again. And, you know, you can hear the other kids complaining, why is the computer working? Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's this BNC Terminator we put on the end the it.
0: That's great. Well, again, that is very, I feel early for networking, especially in a school.
2: So what, yeah. what year is it at this point? I mean, 1984, I that is
0: very early to be networking in a school.
2: It was, I mean, it was, it was fascinating because we got access to this thing. And then the really nice thing is that I wrote to the, the company and basically said, by the way, we've reverse engineered the entire operating system. We're doing all this stuff. Um, <laughs> will you give us the documentation? Because we're like, what? Is, you know, we'd like to actually have the real documentation. And somebody from the organization wrote back to us and said, essentially, and I actually published the letter on my blog. But they essentially said, "Don't tell anybody, but here's all the documentation for this thing."
0: And, and did you reveal that you were fourteen or whatever you were? I mean, did oh, they yeah, know, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah.
0: knew yeah. that this was a uh, this was a bunch of kids that had. Uh, yeah, yeah,
2: it was really, really, really encouraging actually, because you know huh. we were. We were just hacking this stuff on our own. We didn't really have, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just re- reverse engineering everything. And when we we were, like, we did things like we wrote a, um, a paint program. And we were sort of sitting there going, oh, how do we do, like, fill an area with a color? And, you know, writing flood fill and all this kind of stuff. So. And this is for these machines? Yeah, for these machines. For this research machines, 480Z, it was called. Cool. So... I actually have the letter here. It's like, you know, thanks for the letter. Don't tell anybody, but here's the documentation. But I'm just amazed that you're
0: writing a, that it
2: had the graphics
0: horsepower to do a paint program in 1984. Yeah,
2: it, it, it did. It ha- I mean, it was a very simple simple graphics program. I'm trying to think. I think it was at, at the, I think if you, in black and white mode, it was like 640 by 192, I think. And I think in like the color mode, it was like 320 or I mean, I think it was 16K of video memory.
0: Still, though, I mean, you think of like, this is before the Mac.
2: It's about the time, right? Right, Uh, yeah. I mean, it's,
0: that must have felt, impressive. that's very impressive to be, it must have felt like you were really, uh, did you feel like you were on the cutting edge of computing? Because you, certainly from a personal computing perspective, you more or less were in 1984.
2: No, I don't think we had any perspective. I think we just had these machines, right? So I had the Sharp machine, I had the BBC Micro at home, and I had these, these other, these network machines at school. And I just remember more than anything feeling like we could do whatever we wanted with these machines because we, you know, we knew every memory location, what it did, like the, you know, the memory mapped IO, we, we completely disassembled the operating system. I think we, I think Peter wrote the disassembler as well. So a lot of stuff we wrote, right? Because we we're like, oh, you know. It's getting boring just looking at the Z80 opcodes. So let's write a disassembler. And then we, we were bootstrapping from whatever we had. And it was, it was fascinating. I mean, I, I still have a lot of the code. And wow. we wrote this network management package for this network entirely in assembler um, so that you could like, send, send a message to machines. So we wrote a chat program, all this kind of stuff.
0: I mean, I, just, I feel like that—that that, that was kind of pro grade. It was pro grade work at the time. That's what. That's what I mean. Effectively, there were a bunch of companies that were endeavoring to do that same thing at that same time.
2: I think. It, I think you're right. I think it's about the time where stuff was really taking off, and you know, we probably, you know, I, I was a teenager. I probably could have gone and got a job somewhere else. But
0: uh, yeah, right, exactly. You could have like dropped out of school entirely. Was it tempting at all to be like, I, I know everything there is to know about computing, so I'm gonna. Set my Because fore- I'm actually impressed that you studied computing or, or computation at university.
2: Well, so here's a really interesting thing, which is that I was doing this, Peter was doing it, and that were really the two of us in the whole school who were really deeply into it. And I, I think that outside of that little world, it was not obvious in 1984, 1985, that this computing thing was a good career. Particularly not in the UK. Yeah, interesting. It was kind of a hobby thing, and you were messing around and wasting your time, and you should go and get a proper job afterwards. Yep. And I actually really, really seriously considered being a lawyer. Yeah. Because I thought maybe this computer, you know, what is this? This I'm gonna I'm gonna mess around with this. I don't know what my job is gonna be, And, and in particular, the sorts of jobs you're gonna get are like technicians. Right. And it was really looked down on. It was like. There was no distinction between software engineer, which the term didn't even seem to exist, at least from my perspective, and, you know, someone who installs a phone in your home. You know, that,
0: that's a very important point. And you do actually forget that because I was in I grew up slightly later, but in the 80s. Yeah. And actually, my father, who'd written software when he was at university, didn't for a moment <laughs> contemplate doing it for a career. He became a physician because mm. it was viewed so pejoratively at some level. I mean, it was viewed as something that you were like messing around with and having, having fun with, but not something that, you know, I definitely remember my mother vividly telling me, you can't play on the computer forever, you know?
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think my parents were. you know, I was obsessed with the thing. I, one summer, during the summer, I stayed inside the house basically the entire summer in front of a machine. This was in front of the Sharp machine, writing a bunch of stuff. And I wore through... The bottom of the trousers I was wearing, just from sh- shifting in the seat. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was just like it was a little bit obsessive.
0: Um, and, 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 no, at this point, are your parents thinking we really need to get John a piano? Are they are, 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 are they thinking that we have overshot the mark?
2: On, in- <laughs> no, I don't think so. Actually, I think that they they were worried about me not going outside and socialising. They were worried about the computer. I, I think it was just, you know. Why is he spending so much time inside? What is he doing? Uh, on the other hand, you know, I seem to be enjoying it, and I wasn't causing any trouble. So, I, and, and you were very mindful of the power bill. I mean, I, yeah, I, I just, turning off
3: I, lights, Exactly.
0: Can't <laughs> imagine such a considerate child. And right, so then you, you head off to uh, to university, and it's not too much longer thereafter that you're you're on the the the, the, gra- the sunny lawn in London, trying to figure out the yeah, difference exactly. engine.
2: Well I took a year out, actually, because I had bumped up I jumped a year at school, so I felt like I was a bit young to go to college, so I took a year out and i um went and did a bunch of electronics stuff. I went to a local technical college and just did electronics, so huh. I was kind of interested in electronics to kind of learn about how the how things really work but yes, then i get then I got to Oxford and I'm going back and forth to where my parents lived, and yes, Babbage Babbage comes along Although I would tell you one funny thing, which is that. Years after all of this, I, within the last few years, I read a school report of Alan Turing. And in it, the, the schoolmaster is saying, you know, you really ought to do better at all these other subjects other than just, you know, science and mathematics, because if you don't, you will grow up to be a mere technician.
3: No, so, Yeah.
2: <laughs> which happened, really. I mean, he didn't do much, really, Alan Turing, just a technician.
0: He's <laughs> really just a technician. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it is interesting. and you know,
0: i I've got mixed feelings about the fact that now there are, you know, most college campuses in the u s, the introductory computer science course is, the most popular course on campus, having surpassed the introductory bio classes, introductory, it's amazing. Really? Yeah, Jess is giving me a crazy look. No, that's <laughs> like, true. where did
1: you read this? I no, didn't no, know the, that.
0: this is, if you talk to any university, that's crazy. yeah, yeah, no, that's the that's
1: crazy. It was not popular when even I went to school. No,
0: it, this is, well, it is, it's an economic thing as much as it is anything yeah, else. That's right. And that's right. there's money in it, right? That's there's true. money in it. Oh,
1: that's true. Like, nursing was huge.
0: Right. My year. And now, I mean, you can imagine if you're if you're a parent of an 18-year-old who's concerned about the economic viability of that 18-year-old, you're probably telling him to take the computer science class. That kind of ruins right. it a little
1: bit, to be honest. Well, that's the
0: question, right? I mean, it's like it, there was something pure when nobody was pursuing it for yeah. economic reasons. There was gone, like 12
4: people in my class. Right. 12 people.
1: It was so small. And then I was the favorite. I mean... <laughs>
4: <laughs> sorry, did for anyone that? else that? <laughs>
1: just want <laughs> to make sure? To, sorry,
0: <laughs> you know, I I have in, in doing this, I've heard so many stories of Jess and her adventures in math class. So Jesse should know is the person who sets up like all of the trapper keepers around her math exam to make sure that you cannot see anything that she's working well, on. I
1: want to be the favorite, and I want right. to get the hundred percent. Like I, I don't want people to cheat off of me.
0: I I feel like it's reasonable. I, I feel like I was in your math classes with you. It's just, your your descriptions of, of math class are so vivid, but it, it does feel like there is something when you are drawn to it, kind of despite societal pressures to do something else. The people that you end up that end up being there are the ones who are really deeply, deeply drawn to it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I really felt was as much as Peter and I were working on stuff together, there was an intense amount of competition, and I. I know I was incredibly annoyed when he did something clever because like, I really wanted just to master the whole machine and prove how brilliant I was.
0: So dare we ask, where, uh, where is Peter yeah. today? I was going to ask.
2: <laughs> you know, I have seen him and he does something that's designing something for the British government and can't tell you about it. So I don't know what mm. it is Ooh. exactly, but it's some electronic things. Is, so, is this
0: an elaborate multi-decade plan to get
2: even with you? Maybe he's, you know, <laughs> he's like, I'm going to show it to Graham Cumming. <laughs> And again, a satellite is going to suddenly shoot me. I don't know. I don't know. It's been, it's been quite a few years. He went to Cambridge. I went to Oxford and inside oh, wow. a different directions. So.
0: so then you're looking at the difference engine, which I, so I think both the difference engine and the analytical engine are so fascinating because they are mechanical, not electronic. And a couple of questions for you on that, and for those folks who haven't seen it, we'll obviously link to it in the show notes. I mean, you gave a a great TED Talk on the reconstruction of this, Um, I guess, before it was really reconstructed, I mean, as you were showing the the simulation. So, in in particular, you had some programs that Babbage had written for it. And I guess I didn't realize that he'd actually written programs for the thing that he had not built.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, so... If you look at all of the stuff that Babbage left behind about what's called the Analytical Engine, which is his his computer, which is the thing that he worked on with Lovelace, they were simultaneously designing the machine and thinking about what the programming language would be, like, what the instruction set would be, basically. It basically came to this idea that the Difference Engine was limited in what it could do because it was fixed in terms of its essentially its program in a way. And also it couldn't really too much with its output and he couldn't sort of fundamentally take its output and feed it back in and do something with it. And so he realized that there was functions he couldn't compute. And, and the thing is about Babbage is he was completely obsessed with mathematics. This is all about computing mathematical functions. And so he realized he could make this more flexible machine, programmable with punch cards. You know, and why punch cards? Because they were widely used for looms, for weaving. That was a technology that was available. And he's kind of making the instruction set and thinking about what the machine will look like and how to optimize the machine at the same time. So there are in the Science Museum stacks of cards all together with, with programs on them, very simple. You know, this is the sequence of things you would do to calculate some function. The problem was, first of all, I think Charles Babbage was like many nerds, a little bit difficult to deal with. <laughs> um, he also... Realized, like, he's, he's it's the classic thing, right? He, he makes the difference or he designs the difference engine, and then he just abandons it because it's like, I can make an even better one. I can make an even better one. So, eventually, the British government said to him, You know, we've spent as much as a battleship on this thing, and you haven't actually built anything. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, but the next version is going to be the coolest because it's going to have, you know, the such and such features. So, eventually, his funding got cut off. He was constantly optimizing the machine, adding instructions, making it faster. And he realized things like, well, I could essentially have instruction pipelining and data pipelining. Like, well, while the CPU bit is doing an instruction, I could be moving the next data from the store, as it's called. He's just a classic nerd. And then in his notes, he's like, maybe I need 100 memory locations maybe I need a thousand memory locations. You remember this thing's physical, right? So it's ending up the size of a locomotive.
0: Well, it, it's um, physical and it's also unbuilt. This is the thing that is so yeah. amazing to me is that yeah. he is doing all of these optimizations on a system that is not built at all. I mean, I think that yeah. I, yeah. And it, this is, I think that the thing that it sticks out the most to me about Babbage is like, how are you, most of us need to actually like mess around with something in front of us to really wrap our brains around the system. And he, yet he is able to truly, you know, we talk about keeping the system in your head. Mm-hmm. He truly yeah. kept the system in his head. I mean, it's... He
2: did, he did, yeah. yeah. And Lovelace too. Lovelace too, clearly, from their interaction, she understood how it worked and was able to imagine the, the sequence of events. I mean, what's funny about him is he, he's, he's thinking both of it logically, right, and also physically. And at some point in his evolution, he, he realizes that he needs a, a hardware description language because <laughs> it's it's complicated to describe wow. the physical thing. Right. When really what you want to do is describe what the physical thing does, and so he invents a hardware description language. He, like mechanical um, Verilog. What, what is this? Yes, yes. Basically, so he's like so. For example, you know, he uses his hardware description language to describe a clock. How how a clock operates, and he so, said, you know, if this component turns around sixty times, this component then moves one step. Right. So it's like abstract without it being how that's actually implemented. Wow. And so we did that. And of course, classic nerd, he then along the way is like, oh, I'm going to change my hardware description language. So the problem with building the machine is it's a moving target. Right. So there's plans, there's, there's pages and pages of hardware description language. There's also, funnily enough, in some of the best developed plans, there are whole sections that are left, you know, unfilled in, like a blank bit. And, looking at his documentation and what he wrote down because we have his lab notebooks basically thousands and thousands of pages he's basically saying oh that bit's obvious (laughs) yeah it's obvious how we'll do that bit um you know which might be the card reader or something like that the other thing he did is really interesting is microcode so he basically the card the punch cards describe an operation like addition then you've got to actually cause a physical thing to do addition by moving numbers around and and you know carry operations and stuff like that. So there, he's like, okay, well, essentially he microcodes that, and the way he does that is it's on the sort of physical barrels, like in a barrel organ. They have a load of pins sticking out of them. So you have one of those for each instruction, which can then make the, make the machine operate. And
0: that's the microcode, effectively. And that's the
2: microcode, effectively. And wow. Have the machine, but it's, I mean, it's a very similar architecture to one you would recognize. It's got a central CPU. It's got a bunch of memory. Right. It's got ingress and bus, which is, you know, especially the memory bus. So it, it's, it's, it's quite recognizable. I think that's what's so tempting about trying to build it, is, is that anyone who's actually looked inside a computer will go, oh yeah, I can see where the CPU is. I right. can see where, I can see all these, uh, you know, analogies, and, and all of the optimizations he was making is unbelievable. A, a stupid question, was it
0: buildable at the time? Could you have machined it, or was it relying? Yes. Okay, it was yes. actually buildable.
2: So that's really the cool thing, actually, right, which is that here's the other crazy thing about Babbage. The manufacturing techniques were, yeah, everything was hand-built. And so, for example, at the time, if you, got, if you got nuts and bolts, you had to go back to the same nut and bolt manufacturer because there was no standardized threads. Um, so Babbage, before actually embarking on building the, even the difference engine stuff, he went on a tour of England, going to visit people who did manufacturing to understanding the state-of-the-art in manufacturing. And... He eventually teamed up with someone in in London, who had an apprentice, and that apprentice was the person who ultimately would standardize screw and nut, you know, bolt threads. Um, huh. That's crazy. Like, you mean,
0: like that—that's what the, as a contribution to humanity. Like this is the the standard. Yeah. Wow. Okay. He's
1: clearly yeah. good at hiring.
2: Yeah, he <laughs> I mean, is. Very, <laughs> yeah, he is very good at hiring. Yes, I mean, he's very wealthy, right? That helped as well, right? Yes. I mean, uh, but what's clear is he, he had to. Bootstrap, the whole thing is like, oh, I don't have any manufacturing techniques. Okay, well, I'll figure that out. Um, but what's important is when the science museum built the difference engine, they did it using the materials and, and machined in such a way that is with the tolerances that were available. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, at wow. The time. So, so they know that the machine does what it, it, what it should do and would have been reliable. And so I think we have a good sense that the analytical engine would also be you know, reliable. And actually operate. Another really fascinating story about this is uh, if you think about in electronic computers, you know, when you have a signal going between components, you quite often have to make sure the signal is amplified in such a way that it's either a one or a zero clearly, because you get some fan out cost, right, to do electrically. The equivalent in his machine is that he has the numbers that are stored in the memory are stored on a wheel with a, with a cog on it, with a gear on it zero to nine, and obviously they might not move perfectly into position when you do additional something. So he has this little triangular thing that shoves in to the gear and actually pushes it into position, into whatever the nearest number is. So it's exactly an analogy of an amplifier you know, where you're going, say, you know, between logic gates, where you're keeping the signal at the right level. It's fascinating to see these, these analogies between the, the, you know, what happens in electronics and what happens in hardware. But we kind of shouldn't be surprised because, you know, many, many, many years later, church and Turing come along and tell us, oh, well, all this stuff is equivalent, right? It doesn't matter how you do it. Interesting. So was this
4: ever built before the Science Museum picked it up?
2: The Difference Engine was not.
4: No, never built. Never built. No one picked it up.
2: So other people saw that Babbage talked a lot about. He built some little example pieces, components, and then... um, Other people saw them and said, oh, we can build a difference engine too. And so there were other people who built smaller models, not quite the same scale as what um, Babbage was doing. But then Babbage's machine eventually got built by the Science Museum and you can go see it. And then there was a copy in the Computer History Museum until it was taken back by its billionaire owner. Who's the billionaire owner? Yeah,
1: that's shitty. Who does that?
2: It's dark. (laughs) (laughs) So they can throw it off the back of their yacht? So Nathan Nathan Merbold, uh, the CTA, Microsoft paid to have he paid two things. He, he asked the Science Museum to build one so he could have one, have his own difference engine. And um, he sweetened the deal by giving the Science Museum enough money to build the bit of the difference engine that they had never got round to building, which was the printer. And huh. so the, the reason Babbage got into this whole difference engine thing is you have to go back. You're 1800s. Britain is this massive naval power. It needs really accurate information for navigation. And, you know, you, you may have heard about the longitude prize, which was yes, to get to right. the accurate yeah. clock. But what you also need is you also need books of tables, of numbers, like log tables, sine, cosine, all that kind of stuff. So you can do calculations. And the problem was these, these things were created at the time by people who were called computers. computers right, yeah. Exactly, calculated these things, and they printed these books. And Babbage famously said to a friend, I think at college, I wish this damn thing could be... Um, all computed by steam, because that would be accurate, right? That's what set him off in this whole path. And the reason he was thinking that is he and a friend from, from college had the had a fun time going through books of, uh, say, log tables or sign tables and looking for errors, which sounds like a great <laughs> evening thing to do. But there were lots of errors, and finding errors was a valuable thing. And so he was like, if I could just make a machine that did the calculation accurately, then not only that, but removed any problem of transcription, it will actually print out the results automatically. And so it would actually print out on paper and also print out in such a way that it was possible then to reproduce that mechanically in a book. So it would actually make you a lead sheet so you could just take it straight so you'd be absolutely certain your book of log tables was accurate. So we did the whole thing. And so you know this was actually built. and It does actually work as well as prints. So and it even does justification as well, the printer, all mechanically. Wow. Um, so it's cool. This justification. It's
1: justification. Like, like, that's such a good detail. It's such a detail
0: for something that exists only in your head. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it's, it, it's remarkable to me.
2: Yeah, but he was trying to, you know, he was trying to make this real thing that would be really valuable and he was thinking through all of the issues, you know, like what if it's off by a little bit? What if, uh, how am I going to print it? How do I remove a transcription error? What do I do if something goes wrong? And so... Amazing.
0: All right. We got to take a quick break. We're going to be back in just a moment
4: with, with more John Graham coming. On the Metal is brought to you by the Oxide Computer Company. Well, thought we had a bit of time to deal with this, but it sounds like the listeners are pretty restless. Uh Uh-oh, is this about the ads? Yes. Oh, no. The inbox is full. Oh, boy. They also have begun recording their own ads and sending them to us requesting mercy from the repetitive ads that we've been subjecting them to. Wait a minute. They're in such pain over the ads that they're sending us ads for Oxide? Yeah. I picked one out. Have a listen. This is from listener Paul Guaz. I'm getting really, really, really tired of listening to the same Oxide.computer ads every week, talking about how the Oxide computer company is going to make your on-premises infrastructure faster, more efficient, more secure, and just all around less painful. So much so, in fact, that I wrote and recorded this ad. Head on over to Oxide.computer to learn more and join their mailing list. I think we should just do what Paul said. Yeah. Let's just follow his instructions. So Let's get back to the show.
0: And we're back. Right, we're talking about steam-powered computing, literal steam, and Babbage working on his printer. So, I when they put these things together, and we'll get to we'll get to Nathan Mervald in a second, and him taking back the, uh, the yeah, that the, is
1: just it's cruel.
0: That's cruel, and 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 we we're we're gonna, we're kind gonna of him out for it. But were there any? Surely there were bugs somewhere in this. Surely there were things that didn't work correctly, or did Babbage really? Did he get this whole thing nailed?
2: Well, I think he, I, no, he did get it nailed. So what we know is that when they built the difference engine in the science museum, there was a problem, which they identified when they were looking at the plans and the problem was that something was inverted. And the speculation is that Babbage huh. may well have actually deliberately introduced the error. So that someone, if they were copying it, would not be able to get a working oh, work. Okay. All right. it.
0: I mean, that is a testament to like your code is so bug free. That when I find a bug in it, I legitimately think that it was introduced deliberately.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. So, so now having said that, when, when they got onto the analytical engine and, you know, there's these letters yeah. back and forth between Lovelace and Babbage, this is where you get into the, you know, the program is actually buggy, And that's really where, you know, Lovelace and Babbage are going back and forwards over this program to calculate a sequence of numbers. And they're like, wait a minute, this doesn't work. And they're, they're debugging on paper this thing for a machine that doesn't exist. Wow. That's so cool. That's amazing. And are they doing this via correspondence? So yes, actually. So obviously they met a few times in person, but a lot of it is done by, by literally by letter. That's so slow. That's
1: so slow. That development cycle, like <laughs> just think, like that is yeah, like the overall yeah. slow. <laughs>
2: exactly.
0: Yeah, I mean, people complain about like the speed of deploying to production. Why don't you try debugging via exchanging letters letter?
4: <laughs>
1: instead of like <laughs> waiting to compile? You're waiting for the
2: postman. <laughs> oh
0: my gosh.
2: Yeah, for a machine that you don't have. Yes, right. and that, that has no never one been one built. Computer yet. Wow. So, what I, What I would really like to, have, I mean, I I sort of get how Babbage got into this, right? He he sees this problem of these tables and he thinks, yes, this could be mechanized and he keeps going and going and going and he's just building and building on building on it. But what was Lovelace's deal? She was like a teenager. She walks in, sees a demonstration piece of Babbage's thing. Babbage explains it to her and she completely gets it. Mm. Like, what was her yeah. deal? She'd never seen a computer. She's like, great, I'll program that then. <laughs> Where did she come from? Because I think that's the thing that's fascinating. You know, she obviously had a mathematical background. She's, and actually, if you read... Babbage's correspondence she's really the only person who groks it interesting well,
0: okay interesting I mean because I was going to ask like how is this seen more broadly by even others that are, that are mathematically inclined or mathematicians how do they view all of this work at the time
2: I think the big thing is they view it as he hasn't actually built the machine right and he keeps asking for more money and when are we going to get one and i think that's the big thing people understood what he was trying to do particularly around the difference engine because that had a very you know a real purpose that everybody understood it's it's not well understood i think widely what the analytical engine was about because that right. was far out it was like we're going to make this programmable thing and run arbitrary programs on it well,
0: and it's kind of the the curse of the cross-disciplinarian as well right because it's kind of straddling mathematics and mechanical engineering in a way that is probably at some level foreign to both disciplines, I would imagine. Yes. Is, is that a fair inference?
2: I think that's not, that's not a bad point, actually, which is, it's like, cause it's very, you know, he's going from a very, very theoretical world and then he's, yeah, we've got this physical machine and then people are wondering, you know, what is this, what is this guy on about? Right. And, and also you, you're talking about Babbage is also dabbling in all sorts of other areas like, oh yeah, we could probably. One of his famous things is we could probably figure out what the ancient climate looked at by cutting down trees and looking at the rings, like how far apart they are. Um, He's code-breaking things for the British government. It's like all sorts of stuff he's doing. His biography is fascinating. And at the same time, he's arguing with the establishment of Britain about various things. He's basically calling other scientists a bunch of idiots. And Um, and then he, he, he was offered a knighthood. He was going to be Sir Charles Babbage, but the knighthood he was being offered was not the one he thought was the right one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he turned it down. Um, As one basically does. He's like building this machine and dissing everybody else. It's not, it's not ideal situation. Um, the only thing that's really, really tragic of course is that Ada Lovelace died very young. Oh, wow. I was going to ask where she went. She had cervical cancer and died in her thirties. Oh my oh, gosh. Oh, wow, I did not realize so that. Savage like, Nobody understands him. This 16-year-old girl turns up and says, yeah, I get this. I'll program it with you. They go with this long correspondence.
3: And then And she dies. And then, oh and then, dies.
2: And then he, out, he lives for years afterwards, mm. having lost the only collaborator he gets. And there's this one description, because he doesn't describe uh, this himself, but he went to the U.S. at some point trying to raise money because, here, here you go again, this is such an old, old but modern thing. He said, no one in Britain understands me, but Americans will understand because <laughs> they'll think... How can I make money out of this? (laughs) Charles Babbage heads to Sand Hill Road. Yeah, exactly. He basically goes to the U S to try it. And in fact, what he does is he decides to make a machine that will play tic-tac-toe, which will show people in the U S. Therefore, they'll give him a load of money and he'll go build these machines. But while he's in the U.S., he, somebody awesome
1: him. <laughs> so him. Good. I
0: mean, I just, you just got go to pause. I know you got <laughs> to
4: well, so go to the U.S. because I they'll actually, pay me money for Tic-Tac-Toe. Right. I envisioned
1: yeah. him on Sandhill oh, so Road when I. you said oh. that, and then I just couldn't get over oh, it. And
0: then, and then you envision all these VCs, these 19th Turn century right. VCs. Down. And it's like, well, we'll be cheering for you from the sidelines <laughs> and, you know, make that us,
2: right. I, I, yeah. Anyway, so he goes there, and he, and he but somebody recounts I can't remember what it is, but and and it's this is written up actually somebody wrote a letter about it that they had said something to Babbage about Ada Lovelace, and that, you know she had died you know, not long before, and that this is just a description of this him just falling apart in oh my despair gosh. that she was gone, and that you know this was his intellectual equal in this in this process, mm. and he was probably in his seventies at this point, and she was you know in her thirties, but. They got it. They they understood how to make this what this what this future was. And in a funny way, she understood it more than he did because he very much was obsessed with this idea of these mathematical equations. You go to all this mathematics in it. And she's there, and you know, and she says it in one of the papers, it's like, hey, but we could represent pretty much anything by numbers, like music or symbols or or letters, and we could compute all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. And it's like I, and, yeah, and you okay. called that the lovelace
0: leap, I believe. It was, I
2: call it that because I everyone talks about her being the first programmer, which is fine, but, you know, honestly, between her and Babbage, they were both coding. Right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. But this thing where it's like, hey, Babbage, you know you're building this machine, but by the way, we could do text processing and music and it could compose music and all this kind of stuff. It's like, that is a huge leap. That is a yeah, huge leap. that's
1: cool. That is, right? no,
2: it like, really
0: is a huge leap.
2: And to do that, again, on a machine that's not built.
1: Yeah.
0: I
2: know, exactly. <laughs> so...
0: It is a a huge leap. And so when do they get kind of fully appreciated for their, I mean, at what point does kind of society realize that they were truly, I mean, ahead of their time by a hundred years almost?
2: Well, I think the thing that's interesting is they were definitely ahead of their time, but Babbage and Lovelace are kind of like the uncle and aunt of the rest of computing because it's a complete dead end, right? They do this stuff. Di- she dies, he dies, his son carries on a little bit of the work, but it really goes nowhere. And it kind of stops, like end of the, end of the 19th century. And then middle of the 20th century, or you know, in the 30s maybe, computing reappears again, but now electronically, or electromechanically at least. Right. And so it's like two separate tracks where there's, no, there's not really a direct Babbage to modern computing connection.
0: Wait, so I was going to ask: so with the, with the kind of the census machines of the late nineteenth century, how did they even view themselves as as inheriting any of that legacy, or do they? So. I don't think
2: so. Interesting. Totally I think separate track. Just, yeah. You know, other mechanical things you know, that were there, and clearly people were aware. I mean, you know, the folks who worked on the Harvard Mark One, they they say, yeah, you know, there was this other attempt in the nineteenth century, and Turing, in one of his papers, like, yeah, there was. Talks about Ada Lovelace and was aware of because Ada Lovelace was wondering whether this machine could think.
1: What? Wow. That is okay.
2: so Jesus. ahead of its time. Yes. All right, Ada Lovelace, like, how much of the future are we going to envision here? I mean, like, wow, interesting. I know, I know. I do wonder if, like, you know, if she hadn't died, would she have kicked, you know, Babbage and be like, can you just build the damn thing? Like, I've got oh, stuff I've got to write, wow. I've got programs to write. So, That's an um, interesting
0: thought. Yeah. If Lovelace had lived, would but she have.
2: Thing, I think is really interesting is right about this time, right at the same time as Babbage is here with his mechanical computer, Michael Faraday is in London with electromagnetism and he's making transformers and relays and solenoids and all this kind of stuff. And it's quite clear that Babbage was obsessed with doing it all mechanically. And this, ele- this huh. electrical, electromechanical thing was way too new and huh. wasn't reliable. And, you know, we knew how to, how to handle you know, gears and all this kind of stuff. And so you almost want, well, I've actually wondered sometimes, is suppose Babbage has succeeded. would he you have actually set everything back? Because we would have perfected mechanical computing. We would have got it really good and we had all these mechanical computers. You know, Faraday would be on the side, they're going, you know, you could do this about a thousand times faster with electricity, right? And we're right. like, no, 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 that technology is too new. It's unreliable. So. Oh, yeah. Hmm. That yeah. could have
1: totally set a different, like, oh, uh, yeah. time in motion. Oh, you, well, you can just
0: imagine a lot. Well, you can also then imagine, I mean, I think you, you can also imagine the machine gets built and people realize that this, this could be done much faster with, with relays and so on. And then computing gets jump-started
2: oh, yeah, 60 sorry. years maybe. earlier. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Anyway, Babbage and Lovelace were really smart. And definitely Babbage was, you know, if Lovelace is can be called the first programmer, then I really think Babbage is the first computer nerd.
0: For sure. Well, it's all right. So here's another kind of question in terms of, because you mean, in terms of of how the history of computing actually gets written, even the census machines and so on, and the the, the kind of accounting machines of, of the early 20th century don't actually get us over the hump. It ultimately takes the existential threat of a world war to actually get humanity over the hump with respect to, to computing, or maybe I, I maybe did it. Maybe, I mean,
2: maybe, or maybe that was just just happened, right? That in the 30s, you know, Turing is doing some theoretical work. Church is there, and some stuff is happening, and then you know, and then yes, the war is there, and but I don't know. But maybe the war gave us a bunch of money, but feels like the time was ripe.
0: Interesting. Okay.
2: So Shannon is there thinking about you know we could do all this logic. We want to do we could do it with electronics i i don't know i'm not sure the war was actually essential i mean the war certainly a lot of money got spent on computing
0: well it certainly focused the mind on the problems at hand but interesting so all of these things were kind of building up and it it was do you think that there was there was a bit of inevitability to it then at that point
2: i do think it was kind of inevitable yes because if if you look at the way people were thinking about things and then you know there was there was this process in mathematics where there was this idea that maybe we can mechanize a lot of stuff that was happening in mathematics before there were machines. So I think even from the theoretical side of things, the mathematicians were thinking about these things, which is how Turing gets to it, actually. He's trying to solve a problem in the mathematics. He's not trying to invent a computer, but along the way, he's like, oh, so in order to mechanize this thing, I need some sort of machine. And, this is, and, here, and then he describes this universal, what he calls it, a machine, which is what we can now call a Turing machine.
0: Was this a budding th- kind of theory of computation then in math? What's the outgrowth of math that Turing is coming from?
2: Well, so there's this, there's this thing called the Entscheidungsproblem, which was one of Hilbert's problems. So this mathematician called David Hilbert came along and he said, well, there's a program of work we should do. This is in the 1920s. Basically, the idea was you got all of mathematics and he thought, well, maybe we could create this really solid logical foundation for all of mathematics. And we could have a set of axioms and we could do everything, like just lay it all out. All of mathematics somehow be encompassed in this one project. So he's like, well, therefore, we need to figure out what the formal language would be for that. And then we need to see if we could find a system which has certain properties. So, for example, is it complete? Could everything that's true actually be proved? Is it consistent? Are there no contradictions in this mathematics? And actually, the last one is, is it decidable, which is, um, is there some algorithm to decide whether a mathematical mm. statement is true or false? And mm. so mm. know, this, this was just a purely mathematical project. But you can
0: see the seed of the halting problem for sure.
2: Yeah, exactly. And Gödel comes along, Kurt Gödel comes along and comes up with this incompleteness in theorem and says, it doesn't matter what you try, it's going to be incomplete. Which kind of went, poof, you know, blew up the whole
0: <laughs> no, okay. Oh, sorry. Did I just
2: burn your? Yeah, domain I just to was just going to say. I thought
1: that like Hilbert's problem was one of the like unsolved math things. Yeah, yeah, but, it's
2: but like, yeah, that's that, why. But you just ruined everything. And then <laughs> and then Turing is like, well, I think I'm going to go and think about this whole like decidability thing, and I'll go and look at this, and, and you know, what can we actually decide? And so so Church was doing that with the lambda calculus, and Turing with Turing machines, and you know, the equivalent of girdles in complete is a halting problem. It's like, yeah, actually, there's some things you won't be able to decide whether these programs halt. So, you know, at this point, David Hilbert was just like, oh, my whole program is gone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thanks, guys. But what comes out of that, because of the, this decidability is kind of mechanical, is, is computers. So I think it, there was a lot was right in the 20s and 30s. And then, of course, Second World War happened. Right. We need a practical machines. And is this crew
0: aware of Babbage and, and Lovelace? I mean, are they well enough known that they would have been aware that they had done this work?
2: So this references a little bit, but they're not building on it. They're off on the side doing mathematics, and they're not really thinking about this, this machine. It's only later that they sort of, oh, yeah, that's kind of similar. kind of similar to what we're doing. But it's, it's much later. It's not a linear progression through these things.
0: Huh. Wow. And so, I mean, I just, I mean, I don't know. And maybe it's the way you're describing it feels so cinematic. I mean, I know, I feel it like feels really nice. there's gotta be a movie, right? Gotta, really be. We, we got to figure out like who stars as Babbage and who stars as Lovelace. It feels like, I don't know. It feels like there's like there's a great movie to be made here about their story. So, and it must've been amazing too, to have all that correspondence between the two of them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's loads of correspondence, Lovelace's letters, and then, you know, babbage's letters and babbage's writing and her writing and then you know a bunch of people that you know they spoke to and described what they were doing it's very it's very interesting to see it because it gives us a lot of background references one of my favorite things about lovelace is that so her mother because because right so lovelace's father was lord byron who was you know a poet and quite you know famous and also a drug addict and many other things and Lovelace's mother didn't want her daughter to have this poetical spirit, because that was really bad for a girl, right? To have the poetry of her father. And so she made her learn mathematics as an antidote to that. Mm that's how she was taught and then one of her tutors was de morgan of de Morgan's. oh my board. gosh whoa like, hey. that
1: is dope
0: whoa <laughs> it's like, it's like and he, oh
2: and de morgan is here like, he's got a cameo <laughs> yeah exactly exactly de morgan's like you know oh who are we gonna get who are we gonna get to teach her, you know math about as well de morgan he'll do so, <laughs> you know, he's, he's available, available. <laughs> So, you know, so she had this very strong mathematical background. Huh. Um, the only thing about Lady Love is it does come across a little bit in her letters, is she does have quite a high opinion of herself. She, well, she does, I mean, hey, <laughs> hey,
0: wait a minute. In her defense, it sounds like... <laughs> if I mean, one is going to have a high opinion of <laughs> I mean, themselves, sounds like, like she qualifies. Yeah, exactly. She's like, I'm kind of acing it over here. Like, I don't know if you're... Uh... Like, do I need to remind you that music can be represented as information? Like, okay, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, like, yeah. sorry, what have you done again? Like I was tripping up
4: to Morgan when I was twelve. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Well, actually, the Morgan did say about her, you know, she really is an original thinker in mathematics and could actually be a first-rate like eminence. I think is what he I mean. said. So, you know, and she was very young as well, but incredible story for the two of them. And you know, they obviously managed to get the poetry out of her, get the mathematics yeah. into it. So.
1: Yeah, that's crazy.
0: I, it is just yeah, it is just amazing to think about and to think about all the kind of the kind of cast of characters that yeah. are that are um, so. In terms of building the analytical engine, what's the progress on that? Because I think that the and to kind of give you some of the context for the question too. One of the things that's been so fun about doing this podcast is talking to people about how they got into computing, and we learned about this thing called Doctor Nim and this this mechanical manifestation of Dr. Nim that Ron Minnick described as being really inspirational to him. And based on that, there's this thing called Turing Tumble that's out there uh, today, which is really neat. And there's something that's really great and approachable about these systems for mechanical computation because it's so visceral and what you know in a way that you know a smartphone is just is not approachable in any kind of the right. same way and in terms of, of introducing kids and people to computing so what's the progress on the analytical engine because is, is that has that yet been built no oh, goodness
2: me no so i created a little charity in the uk to try and get this thing together and i, and I found basically the two other giant babbage nerds in the world so don Swade, who actually was the person at the science museum who ran the project to build the difference engine and a guy in the U S called Tim Robinson, who has been building bits of the analytical engine out of Meccano and the two of them have been poring over every page of Babbage's notes about the analytical engine. And we now have a massive cross-reference where we can look up anything about this. And so the reason that's important is that Babbage kept changing his mind about stuff. So for example, He's like, oh, yeah, we'll use, we'll use base 10 for this machine. No, let's use binary. No, let's use base 12. No, let's use base 16. So I was going
0: to ask about the base because the 10 is effectively arbitrary. Yes. And you were presumably looking for something that has the best mechanical properties.
2: Right. That's why he, yeah.
0: And so it sounds like there was some vacillation on that.
2: Yes, there was. So his decision was base 10 because it's easy for the UI, right? A human can inspect the state of the machine. And know what's going on it makes it easy it makes the mechanics of the machine more complicated for right. addition and one of the reasons why he wanted to have binary was it makes make an adder really simple right but he realized that if he had binary then his memory locations right his his bytes which are literally stacks of gears, would be so tall mechanically you'd have difficulty moving them.
0: So how much memory does he have in the analytical engine? Uh, it
2: depends which version you're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Which base. Yeah. Somewhere between 10 and a thousand memory locations. Each one being ends on the spec. Exactly. But typically a 30 digit, you know, base 10 number. Wow.
0: Oh, that's cool.
2: That is cool. But it's also, that is small. But guess what? That he is goes, really small. Oh, I might need double precision. I'll invent a system where I can link two memory locations together. So I can, so if I need 60 digits, I'll be fine. That's
0: crazy. So, so yeah, the, the, the quad word, the mechanical quad word. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, That's
2: crazy. So you're trying to, so there,
0: there's efforts, you got to figure out like which version of the analytical engine are exactly, we building here.
2: Exactly. So the next step right now is now that we have all this stuff together is actually to take some of the hardware description language, the Verilog of the 1800s and try <laughs> to figure out, okay, which bits are missing, you know, do, do we have enough to actually, Create something has not it yet. been built in simulation? no, not yet, not yet, because you there's literally you know ten different written plans and there's right. wow. thousands of pages of you know oh, I'll try this out oh, I'll try here's like a little sketch of some cogs, and maybe it'll work like this, and here's the microcode, and by the way, here's a program I produced on paper it's it's a it's a massive uh, you know archaeological thing, whereas the difference engine before Babbage's death, he left behind a complete set of plans so it was. The simple task, the mere task of, you know, interpreting those plans. Right. Well, yeah. the difference is, this is much more archaeology on what he was doing. Yeah, but. I
1: was going to ask because, like, I saw, I stock these weird auctions online. And I saw, <laughs> like, there's, like, some letters and stuff from Babbage and Lovelace, like, in a random auction. So it's like, how do you collect all these things when it seems like they're almost also scattered across, like, the world?
2: Well, the good thing is his actual papers that he had... He arranged through his son, you know, they would be donated to the Science Museum in London. So the Science Museum has kept them since the 1800s and preserved them and then scanned them. Mm. Um, mm. So there's a, there's a lot. So there's sort of the definitive stuff is there. The letters are more interesting just from the historical context of gotcha. what were they thinking and who were they, who were they interacting with.
4: Jess, Tim Robinson is maintains the difference engine number two at the yes. Computer History Museum in Mountain View. What? That's right. Yes. Oh, responsible yeah. for operation and presentation of it. So nice. we're, we're heading there in a couple of weeks, Sean. Yeah, so yeah.
2: yeah, he knew how, yeah, he's, he's run it, really knows how it works. So between Tim and Doran, they've been going back and forth on what are we going to build and what does it look like? But the cross-referencing was massive. It meant, you know, transcribing thousands and thousands of pages mm. and, you're, and you're talking about handwritten in Babbage's lab notebook, copper plate writing, which even just staring at one of them, you and interpret what he's saying.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, to just imagine there, there's a lot to be done, but it feels like this is an important thing for humanity to do, don't you think?
2: Well, I know that computer nerds think that. <laughs> but I'm not sure humanity thinks that. Um, so I know that I think it's really, really cool, and I'd like to see the machine. What I hope is that we can build a machine eventually that, you know, were Babbage to appear in the room, he would, first of all, look at it and recognize his machine, and then, in his typical curmudgeonly way, say... Why the hell did you build this version the next version is going to be, a going to be much fast.
0: better right well <laughs> you wouldn't wonder what he would feel because then i mean all of these things got so improved upon in the machine now he's like why are you building this at all you've already built this machine <laughs> Like, yes, you- <laughs> i know he probably just the greatest for
2: being idiots right stuff. you have these
0: computers in your pocket why are you building yeah. this mechanical thing but it just feels like it would be valuable to go i mean it's it's so important historically you would think and you to you think one of these billionaires can actually like yeah. back up the truck I and mean, they, like, they, like, they spend money on so much dumb stuff.
1: Sandhill road should fund it. Right. I oh, mean, all mm. these like
0: super yachts and all this other garbage. Yeah. Sandhill road. That's fundable. I'm not sure that's fundable. Speaking as ones who have started a computer <laughs> company,
4: I don't know that it would have made our pitch any easier. No, if, that people, an if that helps question. people play tic-tac-toe on a social network, that's fundable. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>
2: I mean, and who doesn't? Who doesn't need a locomotive size mechanical?
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's a, that's a good question. Do we know even what the physical size of a completed analytical engine would be on the order of? Is, sounds like yeah. a, a
2: locomotive size. Yeah, yeah, well, like a small, a small steam locomotive. That's size.
1: cool. That's dope. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's great. feasible.
2: I, I think it'd be fantastic. And be very, very slow. You know, we know that. Well, we have some idea of how fast how fast it would run it takes so roughly based on the data we have to fetch two numbers from memory and put it into the cpu for addition takes three seconds whoa um, but that's why he invented pipelining because he's he like hey we're doing those while well, it's adding i can get the next two numbers and put them on in the input bus so
0: yeah wow that is slow so you yeah. do wonder would that have been prohibitively slow? I and mean, would that have been would it have been able to do things that were otherwise almost well, surely had, not um, his next version?
2: <laughs> no, like, right, exactly. 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 Right. Why you built that one? <laughs> I right. got one doing it in one second. Amazing. Um, the other thing that's quite interesting in, in his stuff is he he essentially has the whole risk versus cisc um <laughs> what? Debate in his head. Because he's like, Well, I can make a simpler machine if I have simple instructions. Oh, uh, interesting. Ah, if I make complex instructions, then the machine will be faster because I can do something like, you know, square root operation or something. So he's like trying to decide, he's trying to play off what do I build versus what, you know, the performance of the machine. And
0: does he have any inkling of the stored program computer? Does he think about putting these instructions in the memory itself?
2: No. Interesting. Not. That's a great question. He does not think about that at all. They're all on, they're all on the punch cards and there's definitely no sense that you could put the program in. Memory. He obviously has a sense of looping and things because he's going to need it. Right, so right, right. He right. Has as a program. The other thing that's really wild is that he's an operator for this computer, and the operator's job is to do what the analytical engine tells that operator to do. Fun so, job. Yeah, <laughs> fun job, right? So, uh, so he, he envisaged there being a, a, a wooden cabinet full of programs and essentially subroutines. And at some point, the machine rings a bell, which is handled by one of the punch cards, and says, "You need to load up, you know, the cosine subroutine right now. Huh. Because I need to do it, because I haven't necessarily got it all because there's a limit on. He thinks there's a limit on the number of punch cards you can have in a reel, because there's, there's going to be some physical limit. So, you know, the operator has to come over and either feed in new instructions or new or new data to the machine. But no, he does not think about it as a stored program at all.
0: That is interesting. So, I mean, because I've always called this John von Neumann's gift, and it sounds like I can still call it John von Neumann's gift. It sounds like it is not John von Neumann's gift as stolen from Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, to a certain extent, the Turing A machine being a universal machine that reads reads a program from the tape is the same same kind of thing. But yeah, Babbage, I mean, his memory was so slow, and I think he liked the idea of punch cards. So, you know, that was where the program was. Just
0: like the physical idea of punch cards.
2: Yeah, I mean, go see them in the science museum. There's a stack of them standing there with a program on them. Wow. I find it so incredibly upsetting. Every time I look at that stack of cards, I'm like, there's a program trying to be run right there. It's waiting. <laughs> yeah, it's waiting it is. It's 150 yeah. years, and no one's running it. So, I mean, you can no, run. No, that's so messed models. up. Well it,
0: well, it feels like yeah. you at least want to be able to do it in simulation. Yeah. not not, not, like, not actually machining the thing, but actually being able to simulate a completed Absolutely. thing.
2: Absolutely, and we'll get there, right? That's, the, that's the, sort of the next thing. Once you say, okay, this is the... This is the machine. Okay, now we can simulate. We've got nice. We can we can simulate stuff.
3: That's cool. And it's
2: interesting, actually, when they built the difference engine because they were doing it in the mid-80s, they couldn't do a simulation because simulation software wasn't right. enough on computers had at the time. But now, actually, yeah, we can simulate the whole machine physically, right? Do physics simulation. So, Well, that's cool. Yeah,
0: which I think it would be... I mean, I think that would be really valuable. I think that, they may obviously make it easier to machine and debug and so on, but...
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and we will. The thing is... It's very easy to design a mechanical computer, right? Because we can just go backwards and we can just be like, oh yeah, well, this is, we know all about computing. Let's design a design a thing online. We want to actually build the thing he wanted to build, not some fantasy version of what he wanted to build. Right. That's what makes it a slow.
0: slow. Right. Because what he wanted to build is so ill-defined. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. right. All right. got to take another quick break and we'll be back with more John Graham coming on the metal.
4: On the Metal is brought to you by the Oxide Computer Company. Take it from Paul Guaz. Just go to Oxide.computer and let's please get back to the show. All right, we're back. And Steve, I think you had a question for John. Well, yeah, I want to ask about another fascinating person in computer history, Douglas Engelbart, that you mentioned in a 2013 OSCON talk when you were talking about how a lot of the innovation of today are maybe recycled is too strong, but had been imagined and had been built before. But you, you talked specifically about him and what was called the mother of all mother demos. Mother of all demos, yeah. Yeah. I oh, to, yeah. I want to ask a little bit more oh, about yeah. that.
2: Yeah, I mean, the thing that's fascinating about computing, and I can't ever quite reconcile this in my head, is that we both like, forget about what the past was and think everything is new. And we, we benefit from that and lose from it because we sort of reinvent stuff and it almost seems like somehow it's necessary to reinvent stuff, that if we were stuck in the past, we never would invent new stuff. So this is a weird thing where it's like, you know, you look at stuff that gets invented today, and you, do, you have the cloud computing and the VMs and stuff, and you're like, wait a minute, wasn't a lot of this done in mainframes? But it's almost like it got forgotten or, like, hidden away or looked down on. And I find it really weird. And the mother of all demos is fascinating because, you know, you're talking about forever ago... And here's a guy doing, like, desktop video conferencing, and he's got hypertext, and he's just interacting with the computer over, you know, a phone line. Um, it's a little more complicated than that. But it's, it's, it's just fascinating to see. And then, you know, inventing the mouse because, hey, we need to have the mouse because we need some pointing device. And that, that for me, is, is, is really, really interesting. But it's hard to reconcile with, you know, we in some ways seem to like to forget the history of computing and reinvent things.
0: So is it reinvention or to me, I think the the present and rhymes with the past because you look at, you know, take cloud computing and and virtualization and so on. There are certainly very, very important elements done very early in computing, but modern virtualization actually did have to solve a bunch of problems that had not been previously solved. I mean, my view has always been that you want to really look to the past to make sure you understand what has been done. Before, so you're not resolving the same problem, but I think sometimes we overly lionize the past and we think that that every problem has been solved. I don't
2: know. No, I think that's true. I mean, certainly the case that every problem hasn't been solved. Although I think it's interesting as you know, the amount of theoretical work that was done in universities. If you go back and look at you know Lamport clocks and all this kind of stuff, where it's all distributed computing stuff being done before we really had enough distributed computing to worry about that. Yeah, I find right. that fascinating. Yeah, all this work, and then you know. Google comes along and builds massive things, it's like, oh, yeah, we can, we can actually go back and look at all this research that was done. So I think people do need to to look at the history, but also be kind of free to say, yeah, we can do this because now we have fast enough processes or, you know, enough processes or good enough networks and all those kinds of
0: things. Yeah, when also making it more robust, because I remember, I mean, being very trolled by an Alan Kay interview where he was lionizing how, you know, Unix was perfect in the, in, in the seventies. And we, you know, how, how is it that we had, you know, a Unix kernel, a complete Unix system with, you know, 10,000 lines of code and, you know, what's, and I'm like thinking like, but I've been in that code and yeah, there was, I mean, it's, it's very important work. I don't want to denigrate it, but there were also all sorts of conditions that it simply did not handle Mm-hmm. And it would, it, you know, it would toss under very. I mean, if you ran out of processes, the machine would panic. You know, I mean, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, so like, like, you know, let's, let's let's take it easy here in terms of like not everything that's been done since then is. So I don't know. I mean, I've got. I'm always of like no, mixed I, I, I up. I
2: mean, we've we've made all this stuff work to the point at which you know, we've managed to give the general public supercomputers in their pockets, and those machines seem to work somehow, and they don't have to worry about you know, I nodes running out or. Any nonsense like that, we've made stuff pretty pretty reliable. I agree with you. I I think it's difficult, right? If you're if you see the the perfection of the idea in Unix, but the implementation isn't quite there, it, it's easy as a program to be like, "Well, that's just an implementation detail." Right, right,
0: exactly, you know? exactly. We, we'll
2: get there. We'll get there. Um, we booked, but the real step was the structure of the system or the decision that everything's a file or whatever was the decision. So I think that's. That's easy. But yeah, making stuff actually work in the real world, it's really hard, really hard.
0: And so you know actually what I, I really like as a technology that is very aware of the past but still very forward-looking is Risk Five. I I don't know how much you've gone into the, the kind of the innards yes. of, of Risk Five, but I just love the way they have so deliberately learned from everything.
2: Yes, I agree. I mean, that's one of the, that's a fascinating project. It's one of those things that I probably wish I had more time to spend messing around with. But yeah, agreed.
0: What I just love they got like, these tables of like all these mistakes that various architectures have made because it's like and it's like all these historic risk architectures have got these weird warts, you know, and they've kind of gone through and systematically eliminated them, at least in the instructions yeah. that have. I like, don't
1: think people give enough like credit to past history when they build things. Right. Well,
0: and I think risk five is a model in that regard, yeah. you know, where it's like, mm-hmm. hey,
4: we paid attention to the past, but we're not going to be confined by it.
2: I do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to look at it,
4: definitely. So not to fixate too much on the mother of all demos, but I, I was curious, was it actually a demo? Yeah, and it was, who actually, yeah. was it a demo too. Yeah. Uh, yes. And it's recorded, it's recorded on video. Okay, so he just recorded it on video.
2: No, it was done live. So it was, it was done live in San Francisco, I think.
0: Right, but I mean, it, so when it says it was recorded on video, I mean, it was we have a video of the demo.
2: Yes, we do, we do. It's 90, I think it's like an hour and a half, something like that, 90 minutes. Sure. Um, and there's everything there. The mouse is there, video conferencing, real-time editing, collaborative real-time editing with somebody else who's remote.
4: And what was the reaction at the time for, to all this groundbreaking technology?
2: I think everyone was, it, my understanding is that everyone was completely blown away because it was, you know, it was networked and it was all this technology was actually happening. And, you know, it's 1968.
0: Right. So this yeah. is before Park. Right. This is this is and the mother of all demos inspires a lot in Park and Park in turn inspires a bunch of the industry. That's
2: yeah. This is SRI, right? I think I remember where it was done. It was somewhere in San Francisco. The yeah, it was
4: in San Francisco, I believe. And did this just shock everyone? I mean, were there teasers that this was coming? Did people know what he was working yeah, but,
2: on? You know, it's like,
4: who was it that said, uh, what, what's the quote, like, the future
0: is here, it's just well hidden, whatever. What's the, yeah. the, the... Oh,
2: no, it's not evenly distributed. That, that's so it, that's right. Yeah, yeah.
0: And who, who, the, the, who is that? That's a... Who it's is William that? Gibson. Right, the, thank you. Yeah. And I kind of feel the same way about, like, the, you know, folks that were kind of in the know knew about that, but it was just like, you know, when we were talking about, like, Tom Lyon was here, who would describe going up to park where his brother worked. And there was a time in Silicon Valley when like one of his brothers, one of his brothers, one of his, one of his 5 million prolific brothers, you would walk into park and it was like walking into the future. Mm. And a lot of people described that. That's cool. And, but it was, you know, it was all still, you know, it was in the, in the present. I don't know what the analog is for today though. You know, what is the the,
1: quantum? Those people would claim uh, that they were the future. I'm just saying, i know. I'm not defending it, but
2: you know they were. Hey, maybe it is. Well, probably. Yeah. Although my understanding is at the time, some people thought that Engelbart was a bit crazy until he did the demo. Oh, interesting. I had had all these ideas that all this interactive stuff was going to happen.
4: And just too wacky. uh,
2: It was just too wacky and out there. And it was like, you know, drop the mic, basically. It's like, by the way, boom.
4: Right, because any one of those things would be groundbreaking yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah, and he's like, oh, no, wait, there's more. Wait, there's more. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's like, by the way, we're doing hypertext. Now we're going to switch windows. Now we're going to do a video conference. Uh, I'll just show, and then we'll do real-time editing.
4: And then I had, I have to believe there's people that were like, oh, this demo's rigged. You know, show, d- does this actually work?
2: Yeah, and it did actually work, although it was hell getting it working. I, re- I remember reading a thing about the... It must have been going to probably uh, you know Bell and asking to get the, the phone line, you know the, the data connectivity between the two locations working. I think they had to use microwaves actually.
3: Oh Whoa, wow, that's cool.
2: But I mean, it was it was totally crazy because it was Menlo Park to San Francisco, if I remember well. Well,
0: mm. that that's is dope. that is amazing. Is there a book on the mother of all demos just on I don't that? No, There should be. There really should be. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that there isn't. I mean, it's certainly referred to a lot by the park folks.
2: But you could just watch the videos on YouTube if you got an hour and a half, you know, to watch a black and white video of somebody making a shopping list and editing, you know, online. Pretty crazy. That's cool.
0: Crazy. Uh, it, it is amazing. And in, in 1968, it, yep. it it's just... Um, it's just stunning. Yeah. And this so like, where is that? Where's the, the, that demo equivalent today? Yeah. I don't know if it's quantum or not.
2: Well, you- maybe what's this crazy thing. Elon Musk is doing drilling holes in people's heads. And oh yeah. Heads and what, oh wait, what? Fair enough. Hold yeah. On. Hello. What, he what, has a new company. The holes in heads. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, like cerebral implants. Into your head and uh. connects you to her or something.
1: It's like, you're racking up your brain to the cloud.
4: Yeah. They're doing POCs right now. Oh my God. Yeah. You first.
1: Uh, <laughs>
0: Yeah, what I I, well, I don't even know. I'm, don't, words don't, fail. Don't I mean, you. come on. I mean, <laughs> it's just. Well, and but you, this is why I think maybe when when you get these things that feel very like a big leap, sometimes it is hard to differentiate those from the things that are leaps that don't actually amount to anything. I, like the whole like nanotechnology. There was a so there was a period when nanotechnology was absolutely going to be the future. And K. Eric Drexler and the gray goo. And I mean, John, you remember all this whole, this whole era?
2: Yes, I do. And I remember being utterly fascinated by nanotechnology and then Neil Stevenson wrote the diamond age and made it seem like it was all coming. And it was, yes, I, I really wanted, you know what I really wanted, I wanted nanobot shaving cream i wanted i wanted want to be able to rub tiny robots on my face and have them shave. That's, that's terrifying cool. and
4: captivating
0: oh my god well no and this is the whole so the nanobot shaving cream mike that's unique to you i didn't i don't know really anything i heard that that's the whole like,
2: thing that's my thing, that's your thing. And,
0: but the whole No, this is this whole nanobot idea this is Feynman's idea of the bot that builds the smaller bot and there was an era in the, I would say, what, late 80s, 90s, when this was a very captivating idea. And then you kind of realized that, like, you know what, this is not coming. <laughs> this is. Oh, that's sad. This
2: book, right, Drexler wrote this book called Engines of Creation. It was yep. about these machines that make machines. Yep. And there was going to be this thing called the gray goo, which was like. The gray the goo, one, right. <laughs> Over the whole world. Uh, by making copies of themselves.
0: Well, no, but and and he would give this very captivating talk about like your demo, and, and he would talk to especially folks in the military-industrial complex about yeah. you know a a cow is a machine that turns grass into steak. Yeah. So based on that, like, why is it not possible to, for me to turn you into gray goo? And what? B- b- yeah. So the idea is that
1: doesn't line up though.
0: Like, well. <laughs> <Yeah. generally, laughs> Well, you know, the admirals for the admirals and the generals, they they got very excited. A lot of about head it. nodding. Yeah, a lot of head nodding. Yes, it was the it was the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> it did. No, there was some truth to it, and I feel that like and nanotechnology i don't know john when did you have the conclusion that like i need to stop waiting for this it's not coming i mean i think actually
2: yeah i don't know there's a lot of things i'm waiting for i've I've stopped waiting for i've stopped waiting for domestic robots that are of any use and i've stopped waiting for flying cars and jetpacks and you know the great group was along the way i guess yeah but the the big problem with it i remember being fascinated by it and then just the the thing about you know the Drexler thing was it'll all be done by having just a you have a whole load of chemicals and we'll just assemble stuff out of chemicals and it's like wow chemistry is actually really hard and you can't just like link atoms together to make plastic you know it just doesn't work like that so i think it was around then i was like this isn't gonna happen yeah so. and
0: so for me too it was on when i read engines of creation and realizing well first of all i okay i this is this is probably an overgeneralization, but i do feel that people that want to go by first initial name name there's like <laughs> There's there's something there. There is no it's like it's K. Eric Drexler, J. Edgar Hoover, I mean there's uh E. Howard Hunt.
2: There are there are a bunch of ones that are anyway, whatever. The it's, um it's like the theory about uh you know serial killers, right? They're all having names like that. They would have two names. Well right, yeah, exactly. That's
1: actually that's fair. Yeah,
2: so there are so there's something we wrote that
1: <laughs> but honestly,
0: and this is an interesting contrast to Babbage because also I mean, Babbage also had Babbage had not actually built anything and yet what he was on was very legit. Yeah. Hey, Eric Drexler never built anything. There was nothing. There was no demonstrable system at all d- demonstrating any of these ideas. It was all ideas. I mean, it, yeah. and when I realized that I'm like, wait a minute, there's there's nothing. It's not like we can't point to anything. That is getting towards what we would call a nano machine. there's not a micro machine, there's not a mill machine, let alone no. a nano machine
2: and then you know, what did we get out of it? We got out of it like three d printers which <laughs> was fun, but yeah
0: yeah, exactly. I got to ask you this because I definitely wonder if you know we've got the first snowflakes of the next AI winter are are surely blowing
2: I, yeah I, I mean I'm not a deep enough expert in this but it sure
0: feels like it. Yeah. And, and please, the lack of expertise, it does never prevented me from shooting my mouth off. So please <laughs> do not <laughs> let it prevent you from, but it, I do wonder if, if AGI is going to be this generation's equivalent of moon bases and flying cars where you're going to have, you know, the, the, when the Gen Zers, the Gen Zers, when they grow up, they're going to be like, yeah, my, the, the artificial general intelligence that I was promised when I was a teenager Never arrived. I definitely wonder about that. What's hey, your- I
2: was promised that too, right? The first, the first <laughs> day I went to, I thought we were going to get there was going to be a, you know expert systems that was yes. the thing. were saying we're going to get so good that they'd replace doctors. That's right. All this kind of stuff was going to happen, and then I was like, yeah, no, no, that didn't happen. It is
0: so. It's actually funny that you should mention it about medicine because that that's exactly what my father was actually doing was working and working with another physician in San Diego who was using expert. Systems on medicine, and it was interesting what their they were. There's a lot of value, but they were very limited in terms of what they yeah. were ultimately able to do. Right.
2: Well, and then, then you know, when IBM has pushed very hard, the idea that Watson is oh. okay. there cancer and stuff, right? Oh, so it's the same stuff again. I. So I, I want to float past
0: an idea for you. I believe that um that we in in computing to prevent the further seasonal cycles in AI. AI is hereby ordered to change its name to automated pattern recognition. It may continue to exist as a discipline, but it must change its name because its very name is is leading to this seasonality.
2: I see, I see. They're
0: overselling it, basically. They have to oversell it because it's in the name.
1: Yeah. I also, I, okay, I think that flying cars are not exactly dead, by the way, because oh, like, wait, no, there you we said go. this twice now, and with... Electric I VTOL and the flying taxis, if that works out. Although it probably won't.
2: Okay. Maybe. I, I, Maybe.
1: I'm just saying. I, I'm just saying.
2: I mean, I mean honestly, I, growing up, I was definitely promised flying cars, yes. protein pills to yes. eat everything. Um, all this domestic robots. Yeah. And literally the future has turned out to be trying to keep all my batteries charged. Great. <laughs> 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 but it's like, great. That's what I got. I got I need to charge stuff
4: up. There's inventors to all that just saying it's just implementation details. It is just implementation. We're almost details. there. We're almost there. Yeah. Yeah, But I
0: think, the, yeah, I think just that I, because I, I grew up in the past that John did where we were really promised flying cars.
1: Like the Jetsons. Yeah. The Jetsons. Or yes. the,
0: it's yes. actually, the, if you really want to capture the zeitgeist, it is that final scene in Back to the Future. Back to the Future, I was uh, going to say, yeah. Yeah. Right. That is what okay. captures that 80s
2: zeitgeist of so what we the future is going roads. to be. That's
1: very different we don't need than the electric V Yes. Because it's basically
2: different. a helicopter. Also, <laughs> right. also, moon bases. Frankly, well, I was promised moon bases. Yes.
4: I was no, promised moon bases. and It's now Mars bases. And it's it's I, fun. And I built them with Legos. Mars bases are coming. Mars bases are, yeah. yeah. Three flights a day. <laughs> Just sit tight.
0: Yeah. Is that for people who've had their skulls, had holes drilled in their skulls?
2: It's actually. <laughs> exactly. Your Tesla is going to drill into your skull and fly you to Mars. It's going to be a the lot of
4: latency back Earth. to Earth.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, with that dystopian view of the future,
0: John, thank you so much. This, is, this yeah, has been great. so much fun. Oh, this has been so yeah, much fun amazing. and and such an interesting tour through the, the history of computing.
2: Thanks very much. Love chatting with you. Good luck with the company. <laughs> yeah, thank,
0: thank you. Sure. Thanks. All right. You've been listening to On the Metal Tales from the Hardware Software Interface. For show notes, to learn more about our guests, or to sign up for our mailing list, visit us at onthemetal.fm. On the Metal is a production of Oxide Computer Company and is recorded in the Oxide Garage in Oakland, California. To learn more about Oxide, visit us at oxide.computer. On the Metal is hosted by me, Brian Cantrell, along with Jess Frizzell, and we are frequently joined by our boss, Steve Tuck. Our original and awesome theme music is by J.J. Weisler at Pollen Music Group. You can learn more about J.J. and Pollen at pollenmusicgroup.com. We are edited and produced by Chris Hill and his crew at HumblePod. From Jess, from Steve, from me, and from all of us at Oxide Computer Company, thanks for listening to On the Metal.